Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Right now, there are about 700,000 people enrolled in the U.S. government's Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, DACA. They're all people who were brought into the United States as kids without papers. Dreamers, they call themselves. DACA allows them to stay and work and go to school legally. And if you're listening to NPR, you probably don't need me to tell you this, but today the residency status of the folks covered by DACA is uncertain, and people are worried about that. So anyway, there's this comedian named Johan Miranda. He came here when he was three years old with his parents from Peru. He signed up for DACA, and some of his friends signed up for DACA too. And today, honestly, he's not feeling that great about it. And I was the one that was like, no, we should, <laughs> we should trust the government. <laughs> we should, it'll be fine. And then, you know, so I was, yeah, I was, I was the dummy in hindsight <laughs> for trusting the government, yeah. It's Bullseye. Coming up, Johan Miranda, a dreamer, a stand-up comic, and a very chill dude. Looking back in hindsight, it's, it is, you know, weird to think about like how much of my personality is just <laughs> me, like uh, coping with the parameters I'm set with, you know? Because I am kind of like uh, a chill dude. Like I don't, I you know, easygoing guy. But how much of that is just me being like, <laughs> don't deport me? <laughs> then Deborah Granick. She's the writer and director of Winter's Bone, the Academy Award-nominated drama from 2010. She's just come out with a long-awaited follow-up to the movie called Leave No Trace. Both are very serious, compassionate films about family, poverty, and trauma. But how'd she get her start? Making wedding videos. You know, I was very interested in, like, the, you know, ECU and the comedy of, like, not being able to put something on the lapel, you know, um... I loved photographing you know, the elders, the pe- people's grandparents and stuff. And so I had to be very careful that I at least got the vows in there as well. Finally, a tribute to a comedian who will help you buy a tree or go to sleep or learn about iron. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So I want to tell you about Johan Miranda, who is my first guest on the show. He's a young comedian here in Los Angeles. He grew up in San Francisco. And when he first started out, a lot of his material was kind of observational, you know, funny, but but not necessarily with a super distinct voice or, or perspective, which, you know, that's normal for a new comic. But that changed in November of 2016 after the presidential election. That's because Johan was born in Peru. When he was three, he and his parents traveled to the U.S. on a tourist visa. And then the visa expired, and he and his parents didn't leave. Johan and his family started a new life here in the United States. So Johan grew up without a Social Security number or a driver's license without any piece of paper that said he or his parents could stay in the U.S. legally. Then, in 2016, we elected a president who promised to implement some of the strictest immigration policies in history to repeal the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy under which Johan was protected. Now Johan faces the very real risk of being moved from the U.S. to a country that he can't remember. That's just part of his everyday reality. So he's been thinking about it, and what he thinks about, he works into his act. I'll tell you guys a little bit about myself. I was uh, born in Lima, Peru. Uh, yeah, moved out to California when I was three. Uh, with my family, I wasn't like an ambitious-ass baby. Like, <laughs> See you later, Mom. I got dreams. <laughs> we came here on a tourist visa. Uh, we came here on vacation, and uh, we're just not done sightseeing yet. <laughs> 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 
Johan has turned that material into a one-man show. If you live in L.A., you can see him debut it at the Lyric Hyperion Theater in Silver Lake. It's called Why Johan Miranda Should Be Deported. And if you're thinking his show is, I don't know, some kind of damning satirical polemic about the Trump administration, it isn't really. It's personal and honest, and Johan is very, very funny. Let's listen. I'm an undocumented immigrant with DACA protection, uh, which 10 state ter- attorney generals are trying to repeal, which, if they're successful, uh, would mean I would lose my driver's license, work permit, and uh, be vulnerable to deportation. And that's uh, my new Tinder bio right now. It's <laughs> Johan Miranda, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. So was uh, how long have you been doing stand-up comedy? Uh, since 2010, so like eight years now, I think. Yeah. Did you always talk about your status on stage? Uh, no, not really. Uh, your immigration status, I should say. Yeah, no, no. I, uh, I didn't get DACA until 2012, which is like what, what gets me protected class. Um, 2010, I was just straight up undocumented. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to even tell, like there's like uh, close friends that I grew up with that, didn't know so like the idea of telling strangers like hey you know you could get me deported at any second night and i i just thought and also i just i think i was like 21 around the time i didn't have any like real opinions about anything i just <laughs> you know, i was just i was just like figuring out like what what can i say that's funny was your immigration status something you talked about with your parents when you were a kid no um it, it's it's weird i i i i can't really pinpoint the the time I I knew that I was undocumented I I you know I I mean I always I always knew I was like like I was born in Peru and like like was an immigrant but I just I I think I just assumed that the stuff we were going through is like just what any immigrant <laughs> I didn't know we were like a special class of immigrants you know and I didn't really understand the limitations of uh, being undocumented until like I until I became you know older and you know couldn't get a driver's license and like couldn't really get a job and like you know couldn't really do anything. <laughs> and then that's what's like, oh, yeah, this is, like, not normal. I mean, it's funny yeah. to think that it comes up with not getting a driver's license mm-hmm. because that is, like, you know, for an adult, it's just an essential part of your life, an essential part of making a living and for, for many or most people. But for a teenager, for a high school student, it's just, like, what you do so you can get away from your parents, right? right? right like, it's, right. like, the... Yeah, I just, I just had to, like... <laughs> Ask my friends for rides all the time. <laughs> when I first got my my actual driver's license, I was like, I I remember I just dro- I just drove. I just like I was like, oh, I can just drive. And I called up a friend like, you want to like you just want to I'm going to drive. You want to just <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, just being able to drive it was incredible. Did you know how to drive before you had a license? Not really. No, I I just got my permit and you know learned, but it wasn't too hard <laughs> at that point. You know. What precipitated you talking about your status on Sage? I, I think it started around, you know, especially after after Trump got elected, because I, I knew he was. Well, one of his campaign promises was to uh, repeal DACA, so I, I knew that. Like, I had a couple of months, <laughs> uh, you know, DACA being delayed action for childhood arrivals, yeah. which is to say that for children who were brought to the United States by their parents uh, and I- either illegally or overstayed visas or whatever, mm-hmm. it was a program to give them a track towards mm-hmm. uh, legal status. Yeah, it, it was basically like a, a temporary protected status because like immigration reform wasn't passed during Obama's administration. Uh, so he kind of just made this executive order. Well, for now, you know, here's a protected status you can have. You know, you just renew it every couple, every two years. And so that's what I had, and that's what sort of you know enabled me to do just live my life. Once he won, it was devastating for me. Uh, I think at that point forward, I just it was impossible to, for me to not, <laughs> uh, especially the months after, to not talk about it. I, I, I didn't really have anything else on my mind because you know he he promised to repeal it on his first day of office, so I just assumed January twentieth uh, uh, he was it's going to be done. So I was I kind of operating on under that assumption. Were you confident when you signed up for DACA? I know folks who are undocumented who never did. That's a conversation I would have with other undocumented people where it's like, I would tell them like, oh, we, there's DACA now. We can have like, and that was the response. I was like, well, I don't know. Like we're, you know, that, that people would tell them like, I don't know. Like you're, 
basically giving the government all your information that could, you know, that could screw you later, you know, be careful with that. And I was the one that was like, no, we should, <laughs> we should trust the government. <laughs> we should, it'll be fine. And then, you know, so I was, yeah, I was, I was the dummy in hindsight <laughs> for trusting the government. Yeah. Who in your life did you talk to about it when you were a teenager or whatever? Once you knew what the deal was, but were still to some extent a kid. The few people that I knew that were in my situation around my age as well. So other, you know, DACA recipients that I, and yeah, I, uh, I would talk to them. They'd, they figure out different ways to get around it. You know, it's, it's not like, um, an identity, you know, it's not like, (laughs) it's not like a social group of, you know, it's just like, oh, this person's also going through, I don't know. It's just something you accepted that it's just, you know, this is a thing that you, is kind of a thing you, you can't do, you know? So, yeah. Did it affect your plans for your life when you were a teenager? I, I mean, I think that's really why I, I got into stand-up. <laughs> I think um, I reached a point where it's like, uh, well, I can't really, you know, do anything. So it's like, might as well try stand-up because I have nothing to lose. And, it, and if, you know, if anything, it seems like the practical approach. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a, yeah, it seems pretty logical to me. So that's when I started, you know. Going to open mics. Did you ever have a like a sit down with a teacher or a counselor at school and have to deal with the reality of your situation when having a conversation that should have been like, oh yeah, you should you should go to UC Berkeley. Oh yeah, I mean we had we had high school counselors and that I would see a couple times a year and yeah yeah you're right uh, around like junior junior or sophomore year they there was that talk about college and. Because I, I just didn't tell anyone about my status, just because it's just it's just a safer bet not to tell anyone. So th- whenever they would bring up college, I would be like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that would that sounds great." <laughs> <laughs> and also, I I think I I mean I wasn't a good like I mean I wasn't a bad student. I just I just was very um, like my grades were terrible by the time I was a senior, and I think a lot of that had to do with you know I didn't really see any hope. So I was like, well, not even try, you know. Did you have a job? Um, yeah, you know, I, I I did things for money. Um, I, can't, I I I can't really you go into really the... be a little more specific because <laughs> it sounds horrible so far. <laughs> well, I can't really go into <laughs> details, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, I found you know, um, but I, I not 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 anything. Or any that, of these I, things that used to be illegal in California <laughs> and now <laughs> and now there's some legal protections for them. Uh, <laughs> That a lot of high school students do. I'm not saying yeah, exactly that, what they are, but if they're <laughs> if the other high school yeah. students have a certain need, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but not enough to like, like I live I live with my folks. Though. I mean, the whole time, and I think partly that's also just being in the bay. It's it's way way too expensive too. Uh, but yeah, I was yeah I was staying with my folks and the whole time. Yeah, for a while it worked at a gas station too. Mm-hmm. Is that just a job where you just show up and they're like, oh, you're willing to come in at four? Great. <laughs> four in the morning, that is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, there, there's no uh, real job prospects, you know. And so I, I, I think that – I remember uh, I, I, I went to um, – I think I was around 19, 20, and I was like, well, I, what are my options here? So a barber school opened up near me. Uh, I was like, well, I can do that. I mean, I don't know exactly how I can – um, so I started, I started going to barber school and sort of, you know, I would cut my friends' hairs and you know, you don't, you know, I could just do that. And uh, around the time it came to like, because it's a nine month program, and I would just uh, go and, and I really enjoyed this barber school. But yeah, around month eight, um, they were like, well, it's time to get time to get your time to apply for your exam. And so they gave me the application, and it's like, oh, you need a social security. <laughs> so like. Well, I can't really, you know, do it, do this. I guess so. I, you know, I didn't finish. The, I didn't take the exam, which I can. I guess I can go. Like I, I talked to that uh, teacher recently. I'm like, I can take it at any point. <laughs> <laughs> so if comedy doesn't doesn't really pan out, I could become a barber. I mean, I'm just saying, a lot of comedians need haircuts. Yeah, yeah. I have a clientele of, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's built in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the comedian next Jonathan yeah. Van Ness, yeah. barber to the comedy stars. Yeah. 
So yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, around that time, that's when I started doing stand up because like, oh, I was like, oh, well, there's literally nothing I can do. Let's hear a little more stand up from my guest, Johan Miranda. Uh, this is from a set that he did at Hot Tub here in Los Angeles, which is uh, sort of an alternative stand up show. In this bit, he's talking a little bit about uh, the neighborhood that he and his family settled into in California before, uh, after, after they came to the United States from Peru. We moved, uh, we moved to San Francisco in the Fillmore District, which when I was a kid, it was, it was a black neighborhood. Uh, not really the case anymore. It's been gentrified. I have conflicted feelings about gentrification because, like, obviously when it comes to my migration here to this country, I have liberal views on immigration. Yet when it comes to white people moving into my own neighborhood, I'm like, we have to build a wall here. <laughs> so I don't know what the compromise on that is. When you started talking about your status on stage, were you worried about it? No, I, I think I, I well at, at that point I had nothing to lose. I think because they already have all my information. Like to apply for DECA, I had to give them every all my information. They have my fingerprints. You know, they can come get me whenever they want. So and I by that point I was like, well, yeah, I risked nothing, and my that's how I looked at it. And, you know, so yeah, I, I wasn't scared for that reason. Yeah. Are you ever scared that you'll commit a crime? <laughs> I think about that all the time because, like, especially, like, I'm, I'm, like, having this, <laughs> like, battle to stay here. And, and I sometimes I'll, like, be drunk somewhere walking down the street. And I'm like, well, what if, like, a police car just pulls over and is like, <laughs> arrest me for being drunk in public? And that's, like, that's the reason <laughs> I have to apologize for it. I'm like, hey, sorry for, like, <laughs> I know you guys, like really helped me here and like we're trying to like <laughs> help me stay in this country but you know i, I took too many shots and i, and I walked down yeah yeah I, I do think about that my stepmother came to the united states in circumstances not wildly dissimilar to yours although she was a young adult when she came to the united states she overstayed a tourist visa mm -hmm. and was undocumented for a time and eventually she got uh permanent resident status mm -hmm. when i was a kid she was a permanent resident and after September 11th, when the Patriot Act passed and stuff, she had been married to my dad for a while and could have become a citizen before that and hadn't because not to show her out or anything. She's not a super big fan of America. Mm -hmm. And uh, then she did become a citizen. And I was surprised when I was like in my late teens. And I was like, wow, you, you decided to become a citizen. Like you always said that you didn't want to become a citizen. Um, and... She was like, "Yeah, well, I'm going to commit a crime." And <laughs> <laughs> I think about that all the time. Where it's like, if, if <laughs> like, what I would do if I was a citizen, you know? Or it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you have a list of dream crimes. <laughs> no, just like a oh, like the walls like, I would pee on, <laughs> the people I would punch, the <laughs> and that's like one of the most frustrating parts of of you know being in my status. I I just know I can't get into I can't get into a fight. You know, so like, like if there's someone like just some like just drunk, uh, whatever, just yelling at me, I can't like punch him, you know, like, yeah, being a citizen, I think gives you that peace of mind, I think, where it's like no matter how much I mess up, it, does, it won't affect my immigration status. That's the kind of thing that is traumatizing. I mean, it is not an inc it's not a traumatic incident in mm -hmm. the same way that, um, you know, someone surviving war or mm -hmm. uh, assault or something else is but to live with fear your whole life even if it's just a quiet fear right yeah i um i started uh seeing a therapist like a little under a year ago and that's sort of we've been uh what she, she likes to say we're, un we're unpacking right <laughs> so we're on we've been unpacking these you know and yeah i mean it's it, you know looking back in hindsight it's, it is you know, weird to think about, like, how much of my personality is just <laughs> me, like, uh, coping with the parameters I'm set with, you know? Because I am kind of, like, uh, a chill dude. Like, I don't, I you know, easygoing guy, but how much of that is just me being, like, <laughs> don't deport me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, what, what, <laughs> what, like, yeah, like, I don't, like, what if I hadn't grown, grown up with this title? Well, I could have been a monster or I could have been, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know. So, yeah, it is interesting to think about in those terms, yeah. When you started talking about your status on stage, um, 
I guess you were probably still living in San Francisco. What kind of reaction did you get? Well, I was living in L.A. when when Trump got elected. So uh, when I started performing, it took me a little while to figure out exactly how, you know, I, I it was a bit of a struggle at first um, because I think most people just didn't understand what DACA was, uh, which is good. That's how it should have been. It should have been a no-brainer, like, whatever, like, before Trump, like, whenever I would explain to people that I have DACA, like, most people are like, what are, what are, what's that? You know, it's, on, on any side of the political spectrum, nobody knew what it was. And so when I first started talking about it, a lot of it had, uh, you know, was me explaining exactly what the situation is, you know. I think as time moved forward and more people became aware of the DACA situation, it became easier because it was like, oh, I could just start in the middle. Like, this is... <laughs> And it's just 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 have fun with it as opposed to explaining the whole you know the whole background story. More to come in my interview with Johan Miranda when we get back from our break. He'll tell me about the material he was working on before the election. Uh, it turns out he has a pretty solid bit about the movie Titanic that all of a sudden seemed way less important. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR's sponsor, the Lagunitas Brewing Company. In addition to brewing beer, Lagunitas helps nonprofits with fundraising. Chief Cultural Officer Ron Lindenbush says every cause they support is central to the Lagunitas philosophy. You know, music, arts, animal welfare, when it comes down to it, beer and music are just part of the fundamental human experience, and so are dogs. <laughs> To learn more, visit loganitas.com slash community. Hi, I'm Shankar Vedantam, host of the podcast Hidden Brain. This summer, we're sharing a series about reinventing yourself. We call it You 2.0. Add us to your summer listening for ideas about responding to life's messiness and chaos with wisdom. And rolling. The news today is terrible, so why not forget about it while listening to Jonah Radio uh, with Cash Hartzell. Hey, everybody. Featuring Neil Mahoney. Also me. This is a podcast where we play music submitted by a uh, listener. We hang out, we listen to new tunes, and uh, we take submissions at Radio R-A-Y-D-I-O, at gmail.com. Come and check us out. We're here anyway. Yeah, we'll yeah. be here. So, and that's it. Back to your regularly scheduled uh, podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. My guest is stand-up comedian Johan Miranda. When Johan was three years old, his family immigrated to the United States from Peru, and they've stayed here without documents ever since. He talks about it in his one-man show. It's called Why Johan Miranda Should Be Deported. It premieres in L.A. this week. A, a lot of folks who are the children of first-generation immigrants or who are immigrants who were brought to the United States by their parents have to deal with a, a particular repercussion of that, which is people who take that action, people who move to a different country are very special people. They are like brave. Even those who are fleeing terrifying conditions are nonetheless like extraordinary, brave, resourceful, resilient, self-sacrificing people, right? Because it's the hardest thing that you could imagine ever doing, uprooting your entire life and starting it somewhere else. Yeah. And for that reason, they often have expectations of their children that they gave something up and their children have to take advantage of uh, the benefits that came from them giving something up right did you have to deal with that with your parents well my parents um slash do you have to do <laughs> uh i'll give my parents uh credit in that they never vocalized it they they've never <laughs> really said like you're a disappointment <laughs> <to us." laughs> even though they have all the right to say and all they have all the right to say like we've sacrificed so much for this and i think about that all the time <laughs> And it's so yeah. Even though they don't vocalize it, it's still something that's like heavy on my mind. And I talk about it on stage where it's like, is they they sacrifice so much for for me to do this, you know? It, for, especially when I bomb, <laughs> like, damn, like I'm not even good at this. You know? 
but yeah, no, I, I, I think I, I think anyone anyone in my situation um, feels that heavy. Um, you know, it's just uh, and and I think that that goes along with um, I th- I'm definitely against any any attempt to criminal any attempt to criminalize parents for that reason. Um, I think especially with uh, DACA, there's sort of this narrative while while it's well meaning it's kind of harmful of like well the, you know the DACA recipients are innocent right don't blame them it's the parents who like did the evil thing and it's like well not really like I, I'm glad my parents like if I went back in time I would tell them go earlier you know like, I, I'm, I fully support what they did and I think that's why a lot of DACA recipients are against these kind of compromises le- like legislative compromises that protect DACA recipients but also like heavily uh, criminalize the parents, basically, and it's like, well, no, well, you can't. That's not. That's, it, it, it doesn't really represent how my actual lived experience of like my parents are better people than me, stronger people, and so it's like any anything that uh, criminalizes undocumented parents, it just doesn't ring true to me. So now that you've done this, uh, talked about your status on stage, and it's been a couple years now, are you glad you did it? Yeah, um, I, it's helped me personally, just uh, being able to talk about it. So yeah, I'm 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 glad I did it. Um, I'm gonna keep doing it, I guess, because <laughs> there's no like solution coming up uh, in, in the foreseeable future. So it's like yeah, I've, I can't imagine not talking about it. You know, it's it would kill me. You go up in front of uh, dozens to hundreds of people every night when you do stand-up comedy. And, um, you know, I imagine you have to interact with them afterwards often. Has anybody ever... Have you ever interacted directly with somebody who thought that you don't belong in the United States? I've only had one incident. Because I, you know, perform mostly in L.A. and San Francisco, so everyone's usually chill. Uh, I remember a couple of months after the elections, um, before Trump even got inaugurated, I was performing in uh, Sonoma. Uh, in, this is in Northern California. Northern California, yeah. And was, um, the host the, ho- the host was doing his set and kind of acknowledged that there was, like, Trump supporters in, like, the front row and, like, you know, kind of bantered with them. And So I, I knew that. Like, the host was like, hey, there's Trump supporters in the, in the front row. So I go on stage and I don't, I don't really interact with them. And at that point, my... My immigration material was just me deal like it wasn't I wasn't really even saying anything. I wasn't making a point. I was just saying this is what it's like this is what it's like been like, you know, just finding out like, oh, I, I could be deported soon, you know. I, I, I you know, I, I, that's how I started off my set and but I'm not really like being confrontational. I'm just saying, you know, saying my stuff and they um they get up and leave. They're like, "Oh, I didn't come here to, you know, listen to this." Uh and they leave. And the rest of my set just goes fine because I, I mean I acknowledge that oh well you know <laughs> I acknowledge that it's kind of weird but then I just keep going and it's fine. Uh, what's, what was interesting is um, I get off stage and the host um, I find that I found I found this out later the, the host introduces the next comic is uh, Asian Asian lesbian comic by the name of Irene too. She goes up next and the, the, yeah at this point the the Trump uh, cr- uh, the Trump crowd is back back at their table. She at the moment she goes on stage, she go, the, one of the guys goes, "Ugh, another one." <laughs> like, <laughs> so, so yeah, they were just terrible all around. Yeah, <laughs> they were just mad at everyone. Were you working on anything when you decided to, when the president got elected and you decided to go? Uh, I was working on a bit about Titanic. <laughs> the movie? Titanic? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. I was like literally in the middle of like working this chunk about Titanic and about how I was making the case that Jack and Rose were bad people. Uh-huh. Because like there was a scene where Rose like was uh, on the uh, – she was on the rescue boat and like saying bye to Jack who was on the ship. And then she decided to jump back into the ship because she loved him so much and wanted to die with him. And I was like, well, somebody somebody else could have been saved. Like, a, a person died because of that stupid gesture. You waited too long. You waited to too jump long. Back. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, no, they're they're self, they're bad, selfish people. And also, the the husband wasn't really like. Oh, now I'm just doing the bit. <laughs> 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 <And> now, <laughs> but, uh, 
But yeah, I was excited about that bit. <laughs> <laughs> and and I just I, when the election happened, I was like, oh, I can't work on that bit anymore. I should I should bring that bit back. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to get to talk to you, Johan. My pleasure. Johan Miranda. If you live in L.A. and you're listening to this in time, his one-man show, Why Johan Miranda Should Be Deported, is happening Friday, July 27th. If you don't live in L.A., you can watch some video of his act on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 2010... Deborah Granick made a movie called Winter's Bone. It was a sort of modern film noir, except instead of being set in Los Angeles or New York, it was set in the Ozarks. And instead of a fedora-wearing gumshoe, it followed a 17-year-old girl as she pieced together the story behind her father's disappearance. Ree Dolly, that was the character's name, walked through burned-out meth labs, negotiated with crime families, bail bondsmen, and cops. It was a small movie, a lot of dialogue, a lot of beautiful exteriors, a modest budget. And, I mean, you probably already know this, but Ree Dolly was played by Jennifer Lawrence. It was her first ever starring role. And Jennifer's performance was great, but that's not the only reason that Winter's Bone was nominated for Best Picture that year. Deborah Granick got the tone perfectly. It's quiet where it needs to be. The dialogue is sparse and plain, but the drama draws you in, wrapped. The characters, some of the poorest, most underserved people in this country, are complex, relatable people. It talks just as much about family and love as it does about the dark underbelly of the Ozarks. The law came back today. Dad signed over everything to his bond. Victoria, I really got to run Dad down to get him to show. You ought not do that. Don't go running after Jessica. Show or don't show, that choice is up to one that's going to jail, not you. You know where he's at, don't you? Where a man's at ain't necessarily if you'd know neither. But you do. I ain't seen him. Could be running around with little Arthur and them, you think? Don't you ever go down around little Arthur's asking them people that they ain't offered to talk about. That's a real good way to end up hit by hogs. Wishing you was. Eight years later, Deborah Granick just released her follow-up. It's called Leave No Trace. Like Winterspoon, it puts a compelling but compassionate focus on marginalized groups. One of the principal threads is a combat veteran's struggle with trauma and homelessness. It tells the story of a father and daughter who live entirely off the grid in an urban park in Portland, Oregon. Then the dad gets arrested. And social workers get involved, offering housing and work and school. But as you might imagine, it's a tough transition. The opening scenes of the film detail regular life for Will, played by Ben Foster, and his daughter Tom, who's played by Thomasin McKenzie, another actress who's making her first starring role. They forage and cook mushrooms. Will teaches Tom to play chess. They build fires for warmth. In this clip, they're inside a tent, and it's raining outside as they get ready to go to sleep. What's your favorite color? What's yours? Yellow. What was my mother's favorite color? Yellow. Maybe she taught me that. I wish I could remember. She would have wished for that, too. You get some sleep. Good night, Yellow. Deborah Granick, welcome to Bullseye. I'm glad to have you on the show. Thank you. I heard that you were a wedding videographer for a long time. Is that true? <laughs> I did do that. I, that's how I made my sort of daily wage or weekly wage in Boston. I was living there at the time. And yes, I did do that. What are the secrets to high-quality wedding videography besides knowing how to operate the equipment? Well, I used to like, you know, it was... There's a lot of anthropology in weddings, and um, weddings, different ethnic groups, different classes, social class, where they're held, um, the poignancy of weddings. You know, so I, my wedding videos were not very conventional in that way because, you know, I was very interested in, like, the 
you know, ECU and the comedy of like not being able to put something on the lapel, you know. Um, I loved photographing you know, the elders, the people, people's grandparents and stuff. And so I had to be very careful that I at least got the vows in there as well, you know. And yeah. You've made uh, films about people who do not share your background. Was that always your intent? Yeah, I think it's for some filmmakers or for some people, it's very hard to reflect on the things that are close. You know, it's the distance, it's the unfamiliar that allows for like almost, I want to say, more replete note taking or more noticing things more. Um, as much as I've wondered what it would be like to try to turn the camera on my own family or on places and, and kind of lifestyle things that I know well, I've, I've just always found it hard. And whereas, when I don't know what this, what how things are done, and the practices that I'm seeing, and the why of everything, it's it's just in, it's in stronger relief, and it feels like there's something there to film. Whereas I'm inured to my own, you know, my own whatever practices. You know, I want to ask you a question about this anthropological perspective. You know, you can go up into the mountains and talk to folks who live there to get a sense of what it's like to uh, to get a sense of what it's like to you know live next to a meth lab or have um, you know a culture where there's always a guitar or a banjo at hand. Like there's there's a lot of things that you can directly perceive to make Winter's Bone, your your movie that came out eight years ago. Yeah. Leave No Trace is a movie that is based on a novel that's based on a true story about which we don't know very much. It's about a father and daughter who lived by themselves in a park in Portland, Oregon. Yes. And and you can't go and ask them what that's like. So how do you get a sense of what those feelings are? when it isn't a place that you can go to and ask people. Right. Well, so then that's that's when fiction and anthropology become collaborators, right? Or they, they you know. <laughs> so um, then if you create the given circumstances, let's say you know a blueprint, like you say, that you know the park that they lived in, and you know that they, they obtained um, most of their food from a very ordinary grocery store using a very modest budget of... of um, very small VA benefits, disability benefits that were at a very low percentage. And so you've got these facts. You don't know what they purchased. And, and you know, and then, but that's what the marriage of fiction, uh, you know, we were in that grocery store. I knew I, it, it made sense that they ate eggs. It turned out that uh, that was something we could cook on, you know, in our set, that once the fire was built, it was easy to boil eggs. It's really... Uh, a lot of bang for your buck nutritionally, you know. Um, I, you know, but then I'm, we're also in the grocery store, and the and Thomason, who's playing the character Tom, she, in one of the takes, picked up uh, a bag of mandarins, you know, just a mesh bag of mandarins, and just and asked her father right there and then, "Can we get these?" And he was going to either nod yes or no. He was either going to be saying that they could afford or they couldn't. Um, the anthropology in this instance could only go so far. If the article had said that they had a mono diet of only medium grain brown rice and beans, I would have been intrigued by that, and I probably would have shown that. But then Thomason may have said, you know, we always have rice and beans in a rehearsal. Can we get tangerines, you know? And I would have been very interested. I would have been very interested in what this teen actress is bringing from her own impulse as well. And in a rehearsal setting, I may have taken note of that and then wanted to add that to the script because it, the anthropology now becomes about this teen and she's got a, a craving and she's and, and it's okay to ask, you know, um, can we get it? <laughs> so my drift here is um, some details are going to be laid out in the text or in the original document and they're going to get married to what that grocery store really has. And then subsequent to that, what the teen actor um, might spontaneously want to mix into the rehearsal. And so it goes. 
In the real life story, the girl who was living in a big urban park in Portland with her dad was 13 years old, I remember, right? Yeah. Um, the actress who plays her in your film is, I guess, probably a couple years older, yes. but certainly could, you know, certainly could pass for 13 in movie world. Um, was that age and part of life of particular interest to you? You know, I think it was important that she was young enough that the f the forest was still her classroom and that her imaginary world was still um, functioning and that she could conjure things and be engrossed in, you know, the world around her in a way that was very focused. I think she's learning at a pretty rapid rate, I would say, that something disturbs and I would say, unbalances her father, you know. Um, and yet she can't be so all-knowing that she's got it wrapped up and, ha and, and has all the vocabulary for that. So I think the, the fact that she's on the younger side allows for this believable process of observation, of piecing things together, of forging your, your connections. And I did like that about her. It allows me to sh use that a lot as a, as a visual technique. What is Tom seeing? And what is she inferring from it? Um, what questions does she have? By those questions, we will learn what is it she needs to know, and we'll also learn a little bit more about her father and, 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 and what she desires. Your film, Leave No Trace, is based on a novel by Peter Rock called My Abandonment. Yes. Is the novel's protagonist also the daughter, as it is in your film? I mean, I, I think that there are two central characters in your movie, but we very much see through the daughter's eyes. Was was that the case in the book? It is the case in the book. Um, in the book, the father has more psychiatric issues going on than we, you know, than, than we depict, meaning I really wanted Will to also be a reliable uh, character, meaning that, um, that, the, that his perception and brain functioning is not so different from ours that there's no point of recognition or congruency. And in the book, he, he suffers from more things, you know, that, he, that his hypervigilance has led him, has, has you know, moved more along the spectrum of, of extreme paranoia. And, and it becomes, he becomes less relatable. But in the novel, the daughter, absolutely, she is the narrator. She is the one that is observing her father. She is the one that is stepping in and uh, translating uh, in some ways for her father, more so than in the film. In the film, um, it is more of a dialogue between them, whereas in the book, given that it's first person, it's, it's, she's the protagonist because she's the only person you can really uh, feel that you understand. Why did you choose to have Will, the father have a more recognizable psychiatric state, um, something that felt more like, uh, more relatable to folks who don't have any mental illness? Uh, I would say that why I did that was because I wanted people not to dismiss him. I didn't want, it is so convenient to say, and we have all this pejorative language, right? Nut job, weirdo, you know, clinically this, clinically that. You know, I, I like the idea that in the DSM, he was hard to pinpoint because part of his stuff is utterly volitional. You know, what would you say about Henry David Thoreau? Would you say he's got defiance disorder? He's, uh, he's grandiose, grandiosity because he wants to philosophically contemplate what it means to live with less, you know? I mean, I, I, you know, it's, I didn't want him to be dismissed. And for us not to care, I wanted to make some of the things that he was striving for and questioning worthy of our attention. And for us to care that he would get some of what he needs. So if he's unrelatable or dismissible, that's never going to happen. We'll finish up my interview with Deborah Granick when we return from a quick break. Still on the docket... She's working on a film based on the book Nickled and Dimed, which, if you haven't read it, is a thoroughly investigated, brilliant work of nonfiction. She'll tell me how she plans to turn that into a narrative film. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Babbel, a language program that quickly teaches real-life conversations in a new language. Choose from Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Babbel's 10 to 15-minute lessons use interactive dialogues and speech recognition technology to get you speaking your new language correctly and confidently. Try Babbel for free by downloading the app or going to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L dot com. There's a new way to hear Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and all your favorite programs. Just ask your smart device to play NPR. Listen to your local station anytime, like this. Hey, smart device, play NPR. I love forget-me-nots. I'm Jesse. I'm Jordan. And we've been doing Jordan Jesse Go for almost 10 years now. And it's not gotten any easier to describe. So we asked our fans to do it for us. Jordan Jesse Go is a weekly conversation with two best pals, two hilarious friends, the hilarious smart kids talking about hilarious stuff that happens to them, mostly really stupid stuff, awkward anecdotes, insane tangents, heartfelt stuff. It's like being thrown in the middle of a hilarious conversation between you and your best pals. It's a show that makes me laugh every week, which is pretty rare and wonderful. It might be the best thing on the internet. One of the funniest things you will hear. And it's the best part of my week and has kept me company for the past seven years through all sorts of life. I love those guys. That's Jordan Jesse Go, the comedy podcast that's been named Best of iTunes. Every Monday on MaximumFun.org or your favorite podcasting software. I'll hug you and kiss you and love you. Love you. Love you. Love you. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Deborah Granick, wrote and directed the acclaimed 2010 film Winter's Bone. After eight years, she's just finished her follow-up. It's called Leave No Trace. It's in theaters now. Ben Foster, who's one of the stars of the film... Gave a quote, and I'm paraphrasing in an interview that he did about the movie. He said, "He said that um, being on set with you was very intense because he had never worked with anyone who cared so much about every choice that they were making as director." And I believe he said that, and I don't think he was joking when he said it. I'm uh, laughing because it's intense, but I think he said like uh, that. Each choice felt like someone's life was on the line. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> Do you feel that way when you're on set? Oh, it, well, the choices have to be performed very quickly, right? So um, when you don't have – when you don't feel like you've had time to contemplate something fully, you know, you, you feel like there's almost more risk associated with the idea that you've – you're you're not thinking it through completely, but you have to decide right now, and you could feel regret, but you nonetheless you've got to decide right now. And so I think possibly in the mix of what he's just of what he said is that notion that um, you have to almost take a deep breath, close your eyes, and say like, okay, I'm taking this gamble, you know. And of course, thank goodness, no one's life is really on the line. Um, but the fact is. I think deciding all day long in a rapid succession of decisions can start to feel like the starkness. Am I am I am I on the right track? Have I made the right decisions? And I think maybe what he's reading in me is that uncertainty that feels like ah yikes! I could be wasting a whole lot of people's times if I'm making a whole set of decisions that don't pan out and don't yield something. I've just squandered a huge amount of people's time and energy, and they're putting a lot into this. I've got to do right by them, you know. So I think frequently a director feels extremely responsible for coming through with something, given that so many people are contributing to the to the process and the effort. I feel like a lot of people have an idea of what a director does that is or, – or maybe how a director is that – might be fundamentally misogynist and I mm. would probably include myself in that mm. like when I think of a director not only do I probably think of a man but I also think of somebody who has a way of being in the world that culturally I would associate with men which is to say like bossing people around especially mm. well um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> And you're talking about the same process in a very different way. And I imagine you must be 
aware of the way that that has affected the way people see you as a director and and the way that that has affected your career um is that true like do you feel like there is a world of people who want you to be somebody who makes pronouncements um for centuries i think we've wondered whether there was a correlation between certain kinds of mania or certain kinds of uh, erratic behavior or centricities and the notion of of genius which is a very complicated term in itself um and at times we know that's really been true right i mean i think someone who stands out like is the embodiment of that is like isaac newton you know uh, the, the many people that never slept or, or, you know, someone like Gramsci, you know, people for whom even just sort of bodily comforts and, and, and you know, basic needs of the body sort of were ignored and and, and the hours at which they toiled and, and the way in which their thoughts would never cease for them and, and that, the, that, that things would come at them so fast and furious. You know, that's a very specific notion. But then we grew this other kind of notion that to be um, non-negotiable, to scream over people, to be so rarefied. You know, I think people started performing this idea of the exotic genius. It became performative. Or it was, there was OCD involved, and it was unchecked, and, and, it was, and there was permission given. Oh, he's a genius. He can roll over people. Or he's, he's a genius. He can scream and shout. He's a genius. He can pound the table and break the glass. Um, He's a genius. He can sort of order everyone in the film to cry. He can order their clothes off, you know. He can compromise them. He can humiliate them, you know. And I think that we are really calling times up on that behavior. And, you know, I'm not going to ever say that... I would never say that no woman can perpetrate that. Of course they can. You know, this is this is a behavior, not a gender. You know, this is a behavior. And um, I just think that there was so much pressure on on men to be so stellar that then they had to perform this jacked up genius routine, you know, which basically was bad behavior. So I think it is complicated. I think women are capable of it. And, you know, so please, I, I, I hope I'm getting this across. Please, Deborah, you know, get this across, which is, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not pitting men against women in this case. It's that we we formatted and and promulgated an ideal of that that genius meant tempestuous. And I I am a tempestuous person, so let me not say that 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 you didn't have to take responsibility for your tempestuous. I am tempestuous, and I take huge responsibility. I can't always correct it. I can't always modify it. But afterwards, I sure. As experience regret, you know, if I've done wrong by people, you know. Deborah, are you still developing a feature film based on Nickel and Dimed, the best-selling first-person journalism slash sociology book by uh, Barbara Ehrenreich? Yes. Yes, we are. We are working on a script um, that is, so we're doing a fictional adaptation of that, of that sociological book. And um, the next phase will be to take the script to hopefully uh, New Jersey. Hopefully New Jersey will be the post-industrial and very rich home for this tale to be told. And um, her book has never lost its relevance. you know. And in fact, what she was calling the minimum wage now, as you know, is often referred to as the poverty wage. So it's, I think, in some ways... What she laid the groundwork for uh, has become an utterly incisive and and continuously evolving analysis. Uh, and to me, it's always so it's so indicative that every few years she has to change the foreword, you know, the preface. She has to update it because the book is still in play big time. And uh, she she notes the crimes against poor people just keep proliferating. Like what? No one, no one thought it would continue. Why would, once you breach this fundamental agreement, and then start to find other ways 
to, to further nickel and dime working people. You know, it's, it's quite sinister, honestly. What made you think that you could make a narrative film out of it? I mean, I remember reading you talking about reading the book that became Leave No Trace and seeing immediately the, um, you know, the way that the, the the way that the trees look on camera, you know. Yeah. Um, yes. And you're, are you asking like what what is yeah. visual in in her book? I just it seems so gutsy to me to make a feature film out of this book. It was a book I I read when it was new and I really enjoyed it, um, and felt like I learned and got a lot out of it. But um, I also at the time wouldn't have been like uh, you know chomping a cigar and being like green light in the room. Let's make a film out of this. Yeah, and believe me, there there's not too much of that. <laughs> that green light is extremely. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's hard one, and, and that would be really uh, about um, a very, very, I want to say, uh, so indispensably important kind of financier right now that, you know, uh, there's only one out of out of many hundreds of thousands who can say, I can work with a slow return, and and my objective is much more impact than profit, and that would that's the kind of financier that would be needed um, for for the telling of a tale that, like you, like you said, that that um, is very, very much the day to day of how to get by in a service economy that is itself very destabilized and in many places sort of rolling up, you know, like that. I don't, I don't. Again, changes happen in a way that in this in this era, uh, it's the speed we just don't have time to turn around. What does it mean for brick and mortar to disappear? You know, to somewhat to become scarce. You know, I think we weren't. That wasn't anyone's playbook. You know, and um, so I think Barbara's book will be such. It will be very rich to marry it to what you know what's happening now. And um, I think what will what what's won my heart is that I want the families in that story to get what they need. I want them to be able to find. Uh, a way to them for them to be adept and and non destroyed guardians for their children. You know, I want them, I want them to find lyrical moments. I want them to find um, things that enrich their lives. I want them to have good moments, even if if there's not a budget in their in their extremely frugal existence, they'll make it somehow. You know, so I want to see the anthropology of of, of scrappy survival. And and her book loves on those people you know it, it, it's it's it, it's it it was always it was a it was a way in which she cataloged the nobility of what it takes to actually be able to function in the contemporary wage labor world well deborah i'm so grateful that you took all this time to come be on bulls i thank you very much for talking to me oh, well thank you for your soulful questions and you know willingness to contemplate so many diverse things Deborah Granick, honestly, one of the most brilliant people I have ever heard talk about film. Her movie, Leave No Trace, is breathtaking. It is in theaters now. Go see it while you still have time. Every week before we wrap up another episode of Bullseye, we like to bring you a culture tip from me, the segment we call The Outshot. Okay, so imagine you're tired but not quite asleep. You're sitting on a thick carpet, let's say maybe leaning against the front of the sofa. You're wearing a warm sweater, listening to rain fall on the roof. And a big soft dog comes up and he sniffs you for a second. Then he turns and flops down against you. You put your hand in his fur. It's warm in there. He makes one of those noises, kind of a floppy, contented sigh. That's the comedy of Joe Para. Iron. It makes up most of the Earth's core and is in our blood. It's also the reason we're here, for the most part. In 1844, the Marquette Iron Range was discovered. And soon after, North Michigan Iron was building the country, shipped through Marquette's Harbor and across the Great Lakes to be made into steel for railroads, 
skyscrapers, ships, and bridges. So if you like this train bridge, you have iron to thank. Hello, my name is Joe Perra, and unlike previous family generations, I'm not a miner, but a soft-handed choir teacher who's just in awe of Michigan's geological splendor. On the Adult Swim show, Joe Perra talks with you. He's a gentle guide to a warm world. He addresses the camera in measured tones, speaking slowly but naturally. He ambles through 15 minutes of gentle strangeness, a sort of antidote to the comedy of confrontation. One time I was at a yard sale with Lulu. I got a blue dot sticker stuck to my shirt. (laughs) Someone offered me $3 for it. What happened, Gene? I thought about selling it, but I couldn't. It's a shirt my son's designed for me. And also, I didn't want anyone to see my nipples. I understand that. I was a chubby boy. I wouldn't call Paris show laugh out loud hilarious. I mean, for one thing, there aren't many jokes. Most of the humor comes from tone and from these tiny deviations from the on-rails world of TV, like maybe a bit of sloppy Joe on the face of somebody who's eating. I mean, literally, that is an actual example of a Joe Parra joke, just a bit of smudge on somebody's cheek. Perry's character on Joe Para Talks With You is a choir teacher in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. He cares about his students. He has a friend, a crush on a lady from the school, the community that surrounds him. And in the pilot, a family thinks his house is for sale because a for sale sign got put in the wrong front yard. And so he agrees to sell it to them because, I don't know, because they like it so much. Hi, I'm Sue Melsky. Is now a good time? Yeah, it's a good time. Okay, great. Well, you, you want to come in? Yeah, we were looking at houses and saw your sign out front. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Someone else put the sign on my wall, but I guess I got to honor it. Should we take our shoes off? Yes. There's very little zaniness on the show and even less loudness. And while Para is a very odd TV character... He's never treated as dumb or pitiable. In one episode, he hears the Who song, Baba O'Reilly, for the first time. And he gets so excited that he calls all the radio stations in town to request it. I mean, he loves the song. And he isn't pathetic for never having heard one of the most popular rock songs ever recorded. He is a hero for loving a great piece of art. And... He's also a way for us to experience wonder, even if we're old and grumpy and jaded. Or young and grumpy and jaded. There's just something about a new song that makes you want to share with all of the other teachers. Yeah, this one's a classic. You know it's not called Teenage Wasteland? Yeah, I know. Para the character is unmistakably middle-class and middle-American and profoundly white. But he's kind of a vision of what's best about those things. Para, the actor, is from Buffalo. He knows what it's like to live in a tight-knit place where you have to scrape your windshield in the morning when you get in your car. The show is a sort of filling station. I mean, it kind of honors what's weird about all of us. Let me put it this way. I didn't know that I needed Joe Para, but I think maybe I do. And that's it. I've been a Who fan ever since, and I've been up for three days straight listening to the new Who song. Sorry to ramble, but I also had another first this morning. I finally tried Starbucks coffee. A little fancy for my taste, but boy, do I feel alive. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. You know the old saying, come on in, the water's fine? It's been warm here in Los Angeles, and people are starting to dip their toes into the lake, in some cases dangling their feet in the water. We're here to say, don't do that. That's a gross idea. 
public service announcement from your friends at MaxFun HQ. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows here at MaxFun are Jesus Ambrosio and Shayna Deloria. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. Our interstitial music was provided to us by DJW, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song was recorded by the Go Team. Our thanks to the Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that tune. Great band. Check out their records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, over 15 years worth of interviews are available for free. Uh, you can find them on our website at MaximumFun.org. We are also on Facebook, on Twitter, on YouTube. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.